Hi, welcome to the Midtown Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check out our website and social media. And now, this week's message. Good morning. So, it is three in the morning on July 4th, 2010. And my wife awakens me abruptly from a sound sleep. She's pregnant. She's been pregnant for some eight months at this point. And she goes, my water just broke. And I'll never forget what I said as a response. I said, no, it didn't. <laughs> and she goes, I think I would know. And I said, I'm not sure you would. Guys, she had been so bossy the day before. Like, she kept making me do all these last-minute preparation things for the birth. She had a list, and she wanted to check the list twice. She put the car seat in. She needed me to get it approved. She sent me to pack the hospital bag to do all of the things that weren't necessary to be done for a whole month. This is why I was so tired. At one point, she told me uh, it was time to cut a piece of plywood for the crib. It needed to be fitted for the crib. You could put the baby monitor inside of it. And my friend with the right saw was out of town. So I said, oh, no dice. Chris is gone till tomorrow. And she goes, well, it needs to be done today. And I said, oh, I don't think you understood. He won't be home until tomorrow. And she goes, no, I understood. And I'll never forget three more words. Figure it out. So there's a confused, lonely Tommy going door to door in the neighborhood going, do you have a saw that I can borrow? It was horrible. I was exhausted. And three in the morning, she wakes me up like she intuitively knew. And she goes, I think my water just broke. And I said, I don't think it did. We have three more weeks. And she said, I'm going to go call the doctor. And I said, well, how's he going to know? He's not here either. (laughs) And so she got up and went and called the doctor, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit I went back to bed. Like, I fell asleep. And she came back in, and she goes, the doctor said, sure enough, my water broke. I'm like, all right. So we went to the hospital. Conveniently, our bag was already packed. I had spent the earlier part of the day doing that because of the urgency of the list. We went, we arrived, and we were assured when your water breaks, it starts a 12-hour countdown. We'll have that baby out today. Congratulations, you have a July 4th baby. 25 and a half hours later <laughs> of intense labor, At 3.30 in the morning, we gave birth to our first baby boy, born with his eyes open, big walnut eyes, just taking in the whole world. He didn't make a sound. It was unbelievable, a little alarming at first. When you give birth to a child, you expect it to cry. I'd seen the movies. I saw the videos from health class. That thing is supposed to make some noise, and he didn't make any. And I remember, too, the nurses said, we know his eyes don't work yet, but still, they were searching the room the same way he enters a room now. Big walnut eyes taking it all in, not saying a word, just taking it in. And I remember how desperate we were for those cries. We wanted to hear him make some noise, and we would get our wish. That silence turned into cries. The nurses told us, you're going to hear some cries, and boy, were they right. Those lungs, they were so big, so full. I never knew a baby could cry like that, and and I never could imagine, and still can't, the day that the cries of your baby would be a death warrant. I could never imagine giving birth and then trying to stifle cries of a newborn infant. I couldn't imagine trying to mask the cries of a baby. Instead of the joy of exclaiming and celebration, it's a boy, to be immediately brought to a place of despair and fear, and yet that's where our story starts. In a small brick home, a baby just delivered, they find it's a boy, and everyone in the home, every member of the family, their hearts just sink because they know 
the cries of that child are going to have to be quieted. They're going to have to be muffled. They're, they're going to do their best to muffle them for three months. But as the baby grows, the, the cries grow. And the cries are nothing to celebrate. They can hide them no more. And if you're joining us today, I want to take you on that journey. I want to take you inside that house, that home. I want to show you the sights. I want you to hear the sound, see the scenes, where our story starts. And in a very real way, I'm praying that today might be where your story starts inside the same place. If it's your first Sunday, we've been going back through the greatest hits of the Old Testament, revisiting the stories from our childhoods, many of us, stories from children's church or veggie tales or Sunday school. Maybe the stories you've heard somewhere along the way, we're going back to them and asking questions now as adults, seeing if they hold any new meaning for us today. And today, we're not going to just begin the story of Moses, which I love. We're going to start the story of Moses' mom, because her story is what inspires his. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Jay is back there ready to bring you one. We take seriously looking inside the words of this book, investigating it for ourselves, We are going to tell Jacobed's story. Did you know Moses' mom has a name? Jacobed, I love that. It's Exodus chapter 2, two books into your Bible. If you got a table of contents, don't look for Exodus, just go a little further. Like it's right after the table of contents, two chapters in, we're telling Jacobed's story. It's a beautiful one. The story of a mom who places her newborn son in a basket and sends him into the Nile. We're going to admire her faith today. We're going to admire her obedience. We're going to admire her trust in forces that she can't even see. And while we think her story is beautiful, we're going to be forced to confront the fact that while we admire her and think her story is beautiful, that if we were honest with ourselves, we would never let this happen to us. And this seems irresponsible. Putting your baby in a basket and just giving up control like that, giving up responsibility, blindly obeying, blindly following, blindly releasing, never. And the story starts where Pastor Jay is left off last week. We met a man named Joseph, a kid who was exceptionally good at interpreting dreams, but not so good at reading a room. And he would tell his brothers over and over how he's the favorite. And so they would try to kill him and then change their minds at the last minute. And God would use this crazy, messed up story to anchor Joseph in Egypt so that when a drought came, when a famine came, the Hebrew people would have somewhere to go for survival. And we'll watch at the end of Genesis how God uses this one family to, after 400 years, make a new nation inside the protection of another nation. God would use this story to create a new people. And then we get to the end of Genesis, the beginning of of Exodus, and we meet a Pharaoh who has no idea about Joseph, a Pharaoh who doesn't know the 400 years of history, a Pharaoh who's like, why are there so many Hebrews here, and how do we get it under control? And so he tells the midwives in charge of birthing for the Hebrews, when one of them gives birth to a baby boy, throw it in the Nile. Don't let it live. Just exterminate it, right? Get rid of it. Our story opens with the Pharaoh who tries to enslave the people, who beats the people. The people just keep recreating. And so he goes, you know what? We're going to have to put a rule in place. Kill the baby boys. Ah, but the midwives, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And so they simply disobeyed the order. So when Pharaoh sees his plan isn't working, a new edict goes out. If it's a baby boy, we'll find him and we'll kill him. And that's the law of the land. Every male Hebrew baby will be thrown into the river. It's the end of chapter 1 of Exodus. So as we begin in chapter 2, look at the last verse of chapter 1, just so that you can see the setting for all of this. We'll hear the words of Pharaoh himself. Backing up one verse, verse 22, Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. It may be the first time, it's certainly not the last, a group of people, a race, sees themselves as so superior that they'll try to wipe out everybody else. They'll try to wipe out specifically the Jewish people. It's a recurring theme throughout history. If we can get rid of all the boys, Pharaoh surmises, 
then we'll get this population under control. Within a generation or two, we can be rid of them altogether. And so the camera pans, the scene opens, our director takes us inside a small Hebrew home in the fertile land of Goshen. Verse 1, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. We'll find out the man's name is Amron. His wife is Jacobed. We'll find that out in chapter 6. Verse 2, when she saw that her son was a fine child, she hid him, circle, underline, highlight, for three months. <laughs> Never noticed that before. Never saw that until my most recent reading of this. The rule is a boy is born, step one. Step two, throw him in the Nile. There is no rule in between those two. He's born, throw him away. She hid him for three months. And when she could not hide him any longer, verse 3, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Oh, this has got to be one of the most heartbreaking scenes. I never noticed it before. For three months, they tried to hide the child. For three months, they did what every parent intuitively knows. We protect our young. We defend them. We provide for them. We, we hold on to them, right? We protect our babies. For three months, she tries to keep the cries under control. She bargains for three months. And the cries of this baby are getting louder. The neighbors are finding out about it. The neighborhood is discovering. The HOA has gotten wind, right? People are passing by. The troops of Egypt are making their patrols. The cries of this baby always seem to happen at the most inopportune times. And how do you tell a three-month-old not to cry? How do you tell him not to make noise? And now it's gotten to the point that if you hit the baby, then you're complicit. You're in on it. You're guilty too. The family's lives are at stake. They've disobeyed. They've covered up. They've hidden. They've lied. There's other siblings, we're told. There's mom and dad, but there's, there's Aaron and Miriam too, at least. And so now the protection of the whole family is at stake. What would you do if keeping your youngest child alive meant putting in jeopardy the lives of all the others? And so they have to let them go. Right? I mean, you can't all go down. How could you defend that? And so mom makes a basket. She covers it with tar and pitch. She builds the best possible floating device that she can. And she wraps him securely, it says. And she puts him in it. And I can't imagine the scene of a mom rocking that basket at home. Amron, her husband, hands on her shoulder, consoling her, but firmly pointing her to the reality, honey, we have to let him go. Just one more day. Just one more day. And babe, you've been saying that for three months. And this is jeopardizing the entire family. We have to let him go. I love that it says mom takes the basket and she takes him down to the reeds at the bank of the river and she gently sets him in. Get that, because if you saw this movie by DreamWorks and Animation, you saw a scene that was great for children of a mom who just kind of haphazardly tosses a basket into a river, crocodiles snapping at it, going down the rapids, right? Great story for kids, not real biblical. She gently sets him in. I don't think she'd go through this type of care and attention and strategy to put him into a basket so carefully to simply chuck him down the rapids. The Bible says she sets him in the reeds. Somewhere the basket would be held tight. She put him at the banks of the Nile. And Miriam, his sister, stands at a distance and watches. I think that's going to become important in just a few minutes. And I love, too, that technically, mom's obeying the rule. Pharaoh said, you got to put him in the Nile. Took her three months. She made a basket to put him in, but technically, 
She's putting them in the Nile. Oh, I love the love of a mom. God bless our mothers. Single moms, married moms, the ones who serve us and love us and care for us and sacrifice for us and teach us like Jacobed that there are times culture tells you you have to do something. There are times that you, you have to obey, but you can still obey differently. We will do it intentionally. We will do it strategically to always show we follow a higher plan. We follow a different plan. And mom has placed this basket in the reeds and then she leaves. And my bet is if mom went through this type of purpose and intentionality, mom knows exactly where she's going to put her baby. She's not just tossing them in there, some random isolated place. She's putting them where people are and there's at least a glimmer of hope. And she's probably looking not just for a high traffic area, but a high traffic area filled not just with people, but important people. Wealthy people, maybe the wealthiest, maybe the nobility of people. Oh, the chances of anybody finding this baby are so slim. And then the chance of anyone finding this baby and then raising it, even slimmer. You don't go against the words of Pharaoh. But if mom has a .001% chance of hope and it involves her child, mom's going to hang on to that .001% chance of hope. She's got to be a wreck because mom is only ever as happy as her saddest child. And her saddest child is in the Nile. So no matter what she has at home, no matter who she has at home, she knows she has a baby boy in the reeds. I don't think she can watch. I don't think she can stand there. I think it's why she's left the scene. I think it's why the Bible points out that Miriam stayed there. Oldest sister stayed there. She's keeping an eye on the baby. I think Amron had to lead his wife by the shoulders. And one of the tightest hugs he's ever given, one of the sweetest, most heartbreaking scenes, as he gently but firmly puts his hands on her shoulders and walks away with her because mom wants to go back every step of the way. She knows every step she takes away from that basket is one step further from her child. And mom wants to go back. Oh, I can't imagine the pain. I can't imagine being in the shoes of a dad who's had to walk his wife through that. I can't imagine the tears, the prayers that are going up as he tries to console her. And then verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. You know the story. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds. She sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then Miriam, in one of the most brilliant cons of all time, I love this, she asked Pharaoh's daughter, like she's, just happens to be there. Should I, uh, should I go get one of the Hebrew wet nurses who maybe could raise the baby for you? This is great. Verse 8. Yes, go. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. She got Jacobed. Pharaoh's daughter says to her, take this baby and nurse him for me. I'll even pay you. What? Shut up. Are you kidding me? The woman takes the baby and nurses him. When the baby grows old, she takes him to Pharaoh's daughter. It says that he became her son. She named him Moses because she drew him out of the water. Oh, you can't make this stuff up. This is a story only God could write. The mother of Moses, who's raising and hiding her baby just hours before, is now getting paid to raise her own baby without having to hide him. This is crazy. This is a great con. She's got something wonderful working here. Oh, you can't make it up. And I want to rush it. Well, when I read the story of Moses' birth, I want to rush it. See, verse 11 says, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were. Well, he's 40 years old in verse 11, right? That, I mean, 10 verses get us through 40 years. We left him as a baby in a basket in verse 10. Then in 11, he's 40. And I kind of want to rush on to 40. But what I wanted to do this morning is stop for a minute and talk about 1 through 10. The story of deliverance. Verses 1 through 10 aren't just a great beginning or the ingredients for a great beginning. Verses 1 through 10 are not just setting the scene for deliverance. They are the first step in deliverance. Let me ask you, when did your story of deliverance start? 
Not when did you say a prayer. Not when did you sing a song. When did your story of deliverance start? Right? Your answers to those other questions, those are great. Not my question. Did that really start a journey? Did you really find freedom there? When did your story of living out all that God had planned for you actually begin? Because I'm promising you, if you have that story, you have these first 10 verses. If you are lacking that story, you need to understand these first 10 verses. So as much as I want to run to the cool stuff that's about to happen, and there's so much, and you're tempted to run, You're tempted to go, all right, now we're going to follow a Moses who's going to kill a dude, and then he's going to go live out in the wilderness, and there's going to be a burning bush, right? And then God's going to send him back to Pharaoh, and he's going to say, oh, let my people go, la, 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 la. And then Pharaoh's going to say no, and Moses is going to say, plagues, you know? And then he's going to lead him out of there to the Red Sea, and all that stuff's going to happen. You want to rush into it, but none of that happens if Jacobed doesn't learn to let go. So I don't want to rush it. So I want to look today at just the simple art of letting go. How do we turn things over? Their son's life was on the line. They were in the midst of a crisis. Their family's survival is on the line, and they had to let it go. And we learned through this story that if we can't give away our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our futures, or our pasts, our past failures, those crises that are hanging on to us, the trauma we've experienced, if we can't let these things go, then sometimes God can't do anything with our futures. We spend so much of our lives holding on with closed fists, trying to predict outcomes, to control outcomes, and it leads to a place where many of us are walking through life with 15, 20, 25, 30-year-old baskets that are just rotting. And God's like, oh, I could do so much with that if you would just let it go. But because we can't open our hands to what God has for us today, our lives, our dreams, our hopes, our successes, our values are things we hold like this. And when it's ripped away from us, oh, that's a terrible day. And we can instead hold our lives, our pasts, our futures with open hands. We can practice the hard days from the beginning. We can say, God, I've always said this is yours. You can have it. So my question this morning, the one I want to dial in on for a moment, is what's in your basket? What's in your basket? What is it that you need to let go of? What is it that's causing you fear, anxiety, stress, guilt, Shame, the thing you're in bondage to, the thing that you're sitting at home for three months rocking that you can't get out behind, the thing that's causing you to hang on, close your fist. In my experience, what's in our baskets usually comes from one of two places. It's either coming from your past or it's coming from your future. What's in our basket usually revolves around our pasts and our futures. And I'll explain. Your past represents the things that were done to you or the things that were done by you. It's either something that someone did to you, a crime, a sin, something that affected you, right? It's your brokenness. Or it's that thing that you carry, the guilt and the shame, that you did something in the past that's caused you to continue to walk with guilt and shame, a guilt that says, I did something bad, a shame that says, no, 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 I am something bad. What's in your basket? In either case, you're allowing your past to define who you are today, even though there's a God who goes, no, 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 no. I made a new creation. You're brand new. You don't have to hang on to that. He's not keeping you in bondage. You are. You can't set it down. You can't put it in the reeds. You can't set it in the Nile. You can't walk away from it. Maybe it's your future. It's the torment of, with, with four kids growing up in this day and age, what are we going to do? How are we going to live? How are we going to survive? What is it going to be like? Can we afford it? Where, where do we go? What do we, what do we 
What do we do? What about my job? What about my finances? What about my family? What about my health? What about what the doctor just said? It's a fear of the future that's causing so much anxiety and so much stress. What about my relationships? What if those dry up? What am I going to do? And our fear and our anxiety and our stress and our worry about tomorrow and those things that are outside of our control are are, are just sucking the joy and contentment and fulfillment and purpose we should have out of today. Because we have such a fear of the future. Now how do we get to where we can just let these things go? We'll talk about that. First, I want to identify what we're talking about. I want to identify what's in your basket. What is it? Is it a job? Is it a dream? Is it your kids, your career? Is it the loss of a dream? The loss of your childhood? The loss of a parent? What is it today that's still defining you? I'd like to identify it. And then with the remainder of our time, after we've identified it, let's talk about it a little bit. (laughs) Normally in a talk like this one, I try to lead you in the message to a place of at the end going, what's in your basket as a response time? I want to invert that a little bit because I want to get specific. Is that okay? You'll find somewhere near you, maybe in your seat underneath you somewhere, a sheet of paper with a basket on it. I'd like for you to identify now, early on, what's in your basket. So if you're brave, grab that piece of paper, grab a pen. I want you to write down in that basket what it is that you're holding on to. What it is that's causing you stress, that's causing you worry, fear, anxiety. What is it that you're afraid to let go of? What is it you're walking around with? The idea of which giving up control over brings you great anxiety, makes your stomach hurt, creeps all over you with fear. Now, if it's the person next to you, use initials. (laughs) Unless they know their initials. Unless you don't care and just draw an arrow and be like, this is what I'm giving up, you know. Maybe it's an illustration. Is it a dollar sign, a job, kids that are defining you? They've defined you so much that you're holding them with closed fists instead of open hands. What is it today that you can't let go of, that you need to let go of? You know you do because it's robbing you of today. If you're brave enough, make a symbol, an initial, a word, put it in the basket. And I want you to keep that as a reminder as we walk through this today and after today. And I'm not saying that letting go of it means ignoring it or not working on it. I want to be very clear. Sometimes the stuff that we're hanging on to, we got to work through. When when Hannah and I give up control of our kids, when when we open our hands about the futures of our children, we're not saying to three-year-old Grayson, good luck, kid. I don't know what you're going to do for dinner, right? We're not just walking away. We're saying, I don't get to control. Your outcomes are not up to me. I'm entrusting you to the Lord. So let's get started. If you, if you have something in mind, something in the basket, a healthy relationship, an unhealthy relationship, a job, a lack of relationship, maybe it's your singleness. Maybe there's folks in the room who are like, I've been walking around single that's plaguing me, the, the fear that I might be single the rest of my life. Draw it in the basket. We're going to gently talk about it this morning, what it would look like to simply take our hands off the wheel, to take our hands off the basket and let it float the way Jacobet did. As we look at her story, we're going to ask the question, how do we let go? How do we let go? So the first thing I see in this story, number one, if you're taking notes, we need to choose to let go. It starts with a choice. We have to make a decision to let something go. We have to decide, Lord, I'm giving up control. It's a decision. It's a choice because feelings don't disappear on their own. Feelings don't disappear on their own. You have to come to a point, and I hope it's today. I've been praying it would be today that you just make this decision. Like, God, I'm done carrying this. I'm done done being handcuffed to this basket. You have anxious feelings about the future or intense feelings about the past? Don't let anybody tell you you're not entitled to feel the way that you do. You are. You are completely justified in those feelings. You have every right to feel those feelings. It's what you do with those feelings that's your choice. Pain is unavoidable in life. Suffering is not. Pain is unavoidable in life. Suffering is not. We will all go through pain. 
We are all going to have some incredibly painful events. We, we, we can choose to suffer with those things or not. How long we choose to suffer is up to us. What you choose to do with your feelings is your choice. I love stories about people who are freed from years of addiction and years of slavery in a moment. Right? You've heard those stories. Folks who walk around with 10, 15, 20-year addictions, who pray a prayer, and God springs them loose. I love those stories. I don't experience those very often. For most of us, it's a journey, a painful, hard journey. Your feelings are justified. No one's taken that away from you. It's going to be hard to walk through this, but it still starts with a choice. I'm done carrying this. I'm going to start working. I'm going to start fighting. God, I'm putting this in the basket. I'm giving it to you. It's a journey that starts with a decision. And it might be a prayer that you have to pray 10 to 15 times a day starting out. <laughs> Until a month from now, you're only making it five times a day. In a year, it's, it's only once a day. It's a journey, but it does start with a decision. I can remember entire seasons of my life, entire seasons of my life in which I was struggling with things, carrying some basket, trying to carry people into new seasons of my life that God was calling me to let go of. And each time I would notice myself picking that basket back up, I'd have to sentence myself into hiking in the woods. This became an expression in our household. Hannah knew what I was doing when I went out into those woods. I would go hike and I would stay out there. When I found myself trying to control something again, trying to pick it back up, I'd go out into the woods and I would stay out there, sometimes arguing with God, sometimes praying with God, hiking, trying to get to a point where I could lay that basket back down again. And guys, some days I'd be out there for hours yelling, crying, not wanting to give the basket back up. There are months where I was out there several times a week. Now, hardly often at all. It's a journey. I got to a point where, where I didn't have to be out there so much, but it started with the decision. I think it's interesting the text says Moses' sister was watching from a distance. I don't think mom was there. I don't think she could be. Mom would have picked that basket back up a thousand times. Every good mom would have. That's the problem with Tommy. I love to pick my basket back up. You know, I give it up, but then I pick it right back up. You could see me at that Nile setting my basket in. I bet you come back 24 hours later and you see me again. Walk around, what you got there, Tommy? I thought you laid that down. I was like, oh, I did. You know, I'm just, I'm finding a new spot for it. You know, I needed to find... You know, I'm going to put it back down. All right, you come back 24 hours later, and there I am again. I thought you let that go. Ah, oh, you know, I'm just, yeah, I got I to gotta set it in from a different place today. Like, I, get, I can make excuses. I keep picking that basket back up if I hang out at the basket. I think that's why mom had to walk away. She had to get out of there. Oh, I can't stand here and watch after I've placed it in the reeds. The Bible says Moses' sister stayed. She kept her eyes on the basket. Why? Because I don't think we can do this alone. That's our second thing that we see in this story if you're taking notes. If you're letting go of a basket, if you're surrendering something, giving it up, we need a lookout and a buddy. We need a lookout and a buddy. Notice that in this story. Miriam stays. But mom leaves. It's verse 4. Her sis his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now it doesn't say this. But I have to believe dad places his hands on mom's shoulders. That he gently walks her away. Gently nudges her away. Because she would have never given up that control on her own. She needs the accountability. And she finds it in the form of a lookout and a buddy. Somebody who will walk with a buddy. A dad who says, I'll gently walk beside you as you leave that basket in God's hands. I'll gently walk beside you as you give up control of this thing that's controlling you. I'll gently walk with you and lead you away from the Nile so we can release the thing that you never actually had control of anyway. I'll do it with you. You're not alone. She needs a buddy. She needs a lookout. A Miriam. A sister. It's beautiful, who protectively and quietly looks on, watches, 
serves as a lookout, provides insight, provides perspective, provides clarity, discernment, acts as an advocate, fights for her health, fights for her safety. You guys, we need the same thing. If we're ever going to live this thing out, walk this thing out, if we're ever going to find health, if we're ever going to find freedom, we can't do it alone. That's why you hear us up here all the time advocating for groups. you got to get connected to other people. Groups here take many forms. Some meet on Sunday mornings. Some are meeting right now. Some meet in homes. Some meet in restaurants. Jay, Jay shared with me this past week, we have 18 small groups that currently meet with more forming all the time. If you can't find one that works for you, start one. Start your own. We're not the gatekeepers. What do you need from us? We'll help you do this. We want to see you run this race. I love what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you guys have heard this verse before, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. I love this picture. It's the picture of a marathon, the picture of a race, the picture of people who are running. Have you ever been to a race before? You ever seen a marathon? There's those people that stand at the sidelines with the little slices of orange, the little cups of water, right? That's what we're supposed to be for one another. Like, what do you need? What do you need? Keep running. You got to run faster. Keep going. You're, you're doing great. You got to keep going. What do you need from us, right? If you need to start a group, if you need connection with other people, gosh, we would love to get you connected. You fill it out on those communication cards in front of you. We will contact you. We'll put you in a group. If there isn't one that works for you, we'll start one. Like, we don't care. We want you to have everything that you need to run this race. And one of the things that you need is a lookout and a buddy. Thirdly, if you're taking notes, we need to remember who we're letting go to. We need to remember who we are letting go to. Isn't it easier to release control when we know the one we're releasing it to? This story isn't advocating for blind stoicism. This story is not arguing for empty, passive resignation to fate. This is faith, not fate. Do you understand? This is faith, not fate. Fate is stoic resignation to some unknown force. What God is calling us to is a life of faith, not fate. Faith is not stoic resignation to some unknown force, some power that we don't know. Faith is a commitment to one whose character we do know because it has been revealed to us on the cross. He can be trusted. The story of the Bible is a story of a God who's moved heaven and earth to get to you in the person of Jesus. A God who became a man. A God who endured agonizing sin on a cross to be raised again three days later, triumphant over his enemies so that you could be pardoned and adopted back into his family. A God who's done that for you is not some unknown force, but one whose character we do know because it has been revealed to us simply in that act alone. The apostle Paul concludes in Romans 8, He who did not spare his only son. A God that would do that for you, that would allow his son to die so that he could have a relationship with you. If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely give you all things? What are you afraid of? This is a God who can be trusted with your basket. When we give up control of our basket, we're giving up a control that we never actually possessed anyway. Have you ever noticed that? Isn't it funny we think we have control over anything? (laughs) If you've never been forced to confront how little control you have, have children. (laughs) Which is our fifth point. No, fourth. Sorry, I'm running out of numbers. We need to acknowledge that control is an illusion. We need to acknowledge that control is an illusion. 
This illusion of control refers to our tendency to overestimate our ability to manage events, to direct circumstances, influence outcomes. <laughs> outcomes we demonstrably have zero influence over. We fight, we scheme, we maneuver, all in an effort to arrive at an outcome that we clearly aren't in control of anyway, but we act as though we are as a way of coping with the fact that I think we kind of know that we don't have control. We falsely attribute to ourselves control of situations to medicate us from the obvious reality we don't possess any. That leads to a terrifying place. The mirage or illusion of control makes us act panicked, frustrated, stressed out. We get worked up, anxious, depressed. We don't realize that nothing reeks of arrogance more than worry and stress. Worry implies you don't trust God. You don't quite trust that he's big enough, powerful enough, or loving enough to take care of what's going on in your life. And so you worry about it. Stress says that the things that you're involved in are important enough to merit your impatience, to merit your lack of grace towards others, or your tight grip of perceived control over a rotting basket. Basically, these two behaviors communicate that it's okay to sin and not trust God because the stuff in your life is somehow exceptional. So you don't have to obey. Both worry and stress reek of arrogance. They declare our tendency to think that we're very big and God ain't. I'm forced to confront this every heavy travel season I have coming up. The days leading up to when I start being on the road a lot, I inevitably find myself praying more than usual for the safety of my family, and my prayers give me away. Recently, God convicted me because I was praying one morning, and I said, Lord, would you take care of my family while I'm away? You heard it. He goes, while you're away? Because you got it when you're here. Like, you just call me up if you need me, right? We're like a tag team wrestling duo. Like, when, you know, when I got to be out of town, God comes in to take care of. How arrogant. Oh, my goodness. So I started changing my prayers. Lord, would you take care of my family? The end. <laughs> We don't have any control. We're forced sometimes to, to confront how small we are, how not in control we actually are. Have you had one of those experiences? Maybe beside a hospital bed, a time of crisis, an experience of terror, helplessness is a terrible feeling. It's a lot like childbirth. I've never felt more helpless and more useless in my life. Those moments I was by Hannah's side as she was giving birth, and I came face to face with the fact that if something were to happen, there's nothing I could do about it. It's those moments at night when you're laying with your head on the pillow and you can hear your heartbeat through your ear. And you become keenly aware that nothing you're doing is actively making that happen. It's something outside of your control. And then it's even more haunting when you're like, if this were to stop, I don't think I could fire it back up again because I'm not doing it anyway. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are dependent. We are small. The Bible does teach responsibility. To be clear, the part of us being image bearers relates to how we steward our responsibility over things, right? Things to which he has entrusted us. We call this dominion. In Genesis 1, the Bible says God gave dominion to Adam. He said, rule everything, be in charge of it, steward it. But let us not forget, we are not in control. We are not in charge. We are stewards. So finally, we need to let God write our stories. I, I got the other numbers confused. I know this one is five. We need to let God write our stories. Did you ever realize the magnitude of Moses' mother's decision? The size of it, 
Had she not gotten to this place where she was willing to let go, where she was willing to take her hands off the wheel, where she's willing to take her hands off the basket, if she had stayed in a position of closed-fistedness, in a position of control, trying to manage the outcomes, direct, steer, lead, Moses and the whole family would certainly be dead. They would have been found, they would have been discovered, they would have been annihilated. Instead, when she allows God to lead, she gives him the chance, the opportunity to write an amazing story. He's like, oh, I can take that. I can use it. There's a baby floating. She, he floats to a princess who's bathing in a river, right? The princess calls for a wet nurse. Miriam goes and finds mom. Mom now gets paid to raise the baby she was raising anyway, in freedom of not having to fear being found out, no hands off the basket, no story like that. No setting him in the Nile, no Moses. No plagues, no wilderness, no burning bush, no Ten Commandments, no Joshua, no parting sea, no promised land, none of that. You have no idea the story that God can tell when you choose to take your hands off the basket. You have no idea what hangs in the balance. When you release, when you give up a control that you don't actually have anyway. So what are you going to do? We wanted to tell the story. We wanted to identify what's in your basket. And then we wanted to ask some questions about it. So here's the pivot. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to keep hanging on? Or are you going to let it go? Guys, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to let go of a basket. I know it's hard to release, to take your hands off the wheel. I know it's painful. Well, what's the alternative? To walk around chained to a basket that's rotting away, not giving a, a chance to God to write your story. I love what C.S. Lewis says. I came across this quote yesterday. He goes, uh, I know it's hard. It's hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for a bird to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at the present. And you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg. You either have to hatch or go bad. Those are the options. It's hard. It hurts. It's frustrating. It's a struggle. To let go, but you're not going to fly unless you hatch. You can't just go on being an egg. You must either hatch or go bad. I can either choose to become all that God has innately made for me to be, or I can choose to live a slave to the past or in fear of the present. At the end of the day, it's your story. You get to choose what script you will live out. Will you put it in the basket? I mean, these sheets of paper, keep the reminder. Talk about it in your groups. Take it home. Stick it on your windshield. Put it in your dash. Put it on the mirror for when you get up in the morning. Put it someplace you'll remember it where you daily look at it and say, God, I'm giving this up again. I'm releasing to you my basket. I love that the story continues that one day Moses, his mom has to give him back to Pharaoh's daughter. You guys remember this? We just read it. And Pharaoh's daughter renames him and calls him Moses, which literally means drawn out of the water. That's your name too. That's you. Your name is you were hopeless. And God drew you out. You came from certain death. Your name is you came from brokenness. You came with a .0001% chance. And then God drew you out. And now you got the palace. That's you. I don't know about you. My name is Moses. My name is one who was drawn out. And now this gets to be your script, but you have to choose daily. God, I'm putting it back in the water. I want to live out this script. 
I'm not going to let the past have a future over me. I'm not going to let my fear of the future have control over me. I refuse to listen to the words of the world. Today, I'm going to walk in your word. I'm going to live with my hands open. Father, may today be that day. A day when we can choose to take whatever stress, whatever fear, whatever uncertainties, those things from the past that have a hold on us, that fear of the future that's controlling us today, we can take those things, put it in this basket and say, Lord, it's yours. I will start living each day as a son or a daughter of the king. I've been drawn out of the water. I will let you write my story. Friends, something we like to do here is leave a minute or two for reflection. We're heading out back into a noisy world. A world saying a lot of things. I think sometimes we forget that as much as there is a great God, there's also an enemy. And we daily have a choice of who we'll listen to. What the world is telling us about us or what the word is telling us about us. And here's the problem. They, they both use truth. The truth of who you are and where you've come from. There's a world that says, this is why you're broken. This is why you don't have hope. This message isn't for you. God can't do this. And it's found in truth. You are broken. But we look at God's word that looks at the cross and says, yes, that's true. And that's why the cross over here is everything. That's what's available to us now. You have to choose what truth you will listen to. Either what the lies say about you or what the Lord says about you. It's your choice. I promise you that none of you have out the cross. It's big enough. You just got to decide for you and your things, what do I do with this? Am I going to let this basket have control over me, this fear? Or am I going to surrender it to a God who did everything to get to me? I am drawn out of the water. I am yours. So in the quietness of this moment, my prayer is that he'll speak to your heart, that he'll identify if he hasn't already, that you'll hang on to that sheet of paper. You'll put it places where you remember, I'm laying this down. I am not going to live this way. Lord, I'm giving you room to write my story. As we process, as we reflect, Ashton will sing. There are different ways around the room that you can interact. There's prayer candles up here. It's a communion table. There's kneelers. You can just stay where you are. Jot some things down that you hear the Spirit saying to you. And if after just a minute, Ashton will pray over us. She will close us with the word amen. If it's your first time visiting with us at that amen, you are free to go. We've enjoyed worshiping with you. We hope to see you again. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information on who we are, check out our website, midtownvineyardchurch.com. We'd love to hear from you. Make sure you leave us a review or drop us a comment. Until next time, have a great day.